welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching and learning and pivoting to digital for the whole TRU community. I'm your host, Brenna Clark-Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tkumlupste Swetmuk within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmukulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And today I'm thinking about openness, what openness fixes, what it doesn't, and why you might want to dabble. Let's get into it. So this week, Jamie and I have been running a workshop called Life Beyond Moodle, uh, where we show folks how to build a course space on WordPress instead of inside Moodle or on Pressbooks that you can provide to students outside of the Moodle infrastructure. And we have two different iterations, a version where students still submit assessments through Moodle and a version where they don't. And one of the questions that I keep kind of coming back to in my own head is like, why are we showing this <laughs> to people? There's lots of good reasons that are really kind of just affective. We're all kind of tired of looking at Moodle. Um, it's fun to learn something new and dabble in a new project, especially when maybe you've got a little bit of Moodle fatigue from staring at the same teal green walls for so many months. But there's larger reasons to move into the open as well. Open pedagogy is something that's really important to me, somewhat ill-defined, but really important to me. To me, open pedagogy is just sharing our teaching and learning practice out in the open. So anyone who has come on the show to talk about teaching and learning with me, to me, that's open pedagogical practice. Folks who open up their course spaces so that people can see their materials, folks who build OERs and share their assessment practices. To me, these all connect to open pedagogy. It's really just, for me, an open conversation about teaching and learning where we're able to learn from each other. The reason why I love open WordPress or Pressbook-based course spaces is because I get inspired by seeing what other educators are doing with their students. And it's fun to look at other people's assessments to adapt them for my own contexts. And to me, openness is a bit of a reciprocal relationship, right? I borrow from you, and so it's pretty ethically important that I also share something back into the community. Otherwise, the well dries up pretty quickly. I'm not saying that open is the right choice for everyone, but I think that it can help us break down some of the silos that emerge between our disciplines, even at a relatively small institution like TRU. Maybe there are practices that we all want to get better at, that we can share resources for. If we're not willing to have conversations about our teaching and learning out in the open, too, I think that it can make the whole process of learning how to teach feel really Byzantine and mysterious, right? I always come back to the fact that most of us don't come to these jobs with any teaching or learning training whatsoever, which is 
super weird when you think about it for too long. And because of that, I think I owe most of what I know about teaching and learning to people who are willing to open up their practice for me. And so I guess I feel a bit of a reciprocal responsibility to open up my practice for other people. Anyway, even if you missed the workshop that Jamie and I have been running this week, the resources are all available online. I'll link to them in the show notes. And there's still time. There's two more workshops. You're more than welcome to jump in anytime. So I'll include a link for the registration too. But even if a workshop isn't in the cards for you right now, and Lord knows, I understand if that's the case, then I wonder if you might think about how you could open up aspects of your teaching and learning to your own scholarly community. I wonder if things like H5P resources that you've created, might you might share them to a repository, or you might think about inviting conversations about your teaching from your colleagues. I think that that could be particularly useful right now as we look towards a fairly uncertain fall. Maybe getting feedback on some of the component parts you built in the last year could be useful as you think about what's worth reusing next term. I think if you're new to opening out your practice, even just finding one or two people to have those conversations with who you trust can be baby steps in that direction. And ultimately, I think it's all to the good. I don't advocate for any kind of forced openness. I think Openness only works when we have the opportunity to go into it in an open-hearted way. If we're forcing people to open up their practice, that's not really the point. And everybody comes to it at a different stage in their career and with a different amount of readiness. But I encourage you to think about how other people opening up their practice may have benefited you over the years and why you might want to reciprocate. Changing gears a bit, although the ethos is pretty much the same, I'm thrilled to be joined by Franklin Sayer today, not just because he's a librarian and librarians are inherently great as people, but because he's here to talk about the TRU Makerspace coming January 2022, and I think you're going to want to know more. So today I am here with Franklin Sayer. Franklin, would you introduce yourself to folks and let them know where they might have interacted with you on campus, maybe in the before times or maybe since? Uh, yeah, happy to. Um, so uh, I'm the um, STEM and Makerspace Librarian at TRU. Uh, I joined TRU in uh, 2019. Um, so I'm responsible for um, library support and uh, working with students and faculty from uh, the sciences and the trades. And uh, since about 2020, early 2020, I've been working on um, uh, implementing a makerspace at TRU. So I've also been uh, meeting with folks to talk about uh, what a makerspace will look like and how that will work on campus. And uh, many of you may have met me in classes before uh, as I've gone in to talk about searching databases and finding resources for your uh, research and learning. Oh, right on. So that is really, the makerspace is really why I invited you on the podcast today to tell folks about it. So maybe you could kind of give us your elevator pitch for the makerspace. Let us know like what it is and where it's going to live and why people might want to know about it. Yeah. So the makerspace is really exciting. So uh, in January, 2022, um, we're going to open a seven room makerspace and the bottom floor of HOL uh, just behind 
Um, the Tim Hortons, uh, HOL, of course, is House of Learning, uh, to uh, expand that acronym a little bit. And uh, the makerspace will include a, uh, a big central room with um, a lot of tables and space for students and faculty to work in small groups or individually. And then uh, we'll have two VR studios and a podcasting studio, uh, a room we're kind of calling a uh, textile arts room with an embroidery machine and some sewing machines, uh, a STEM education room that'll have educational robots as well as uh, Raspberry Pis and Arduinos and some computer prototyping equipment. And then we'll have a 3D printing room that'll have a couple 3D printers and a uh, laser cutter. And uh, basically what a makerspace is, is it's a, a space for unstructured exploration and play with uh, emerging and new technologies. And I think what makes it really exciting is that um, unstructured piece. It's a place where mm. we really want users to be able to come uh, without really any intention of what they're going to do or with any previous knowledge with any of these technologies and have an opportunity to have hands-on experience with them right away, uh, as well as a space that faculty and researchers can come in and advance their goals and uh, explore uh, new methods of instruction um, or new uh, research ideas they have. So I feel like you guys piloted some pieces of this before the pandemic, right? Like I feel like I went into a room <laughs> and there were materials uh -huh. there. I feel like the textile room is a thing that I saw once, mm -hmm. but a lot of things that happened in early 2020 are very much a blur to me. So am I right? Yeah, you're right. And uh, right, and it, it it sort of blows me away even thinking about the January 2022 as our start date. Um, yeah. Because time right now just seems to mean almost nothing. Um, so in uh, 2020, in January 2020, we um, did a soft launch of what was supposed to be a one to 1.5 year pilot makerspace in which we turned three study rooms into sort of um, uh, an exploratory pilot makerspace. We had butcher paper on the wall. We had a bunch of mm. Sharpies so people could write stuff. Uh, we didn't spend a lot of money. Uh, it was intentional. Uh, we bought a basic 3D printer, an embroidery machine, and a VR headset um, and some robots and stuff. And really the intention there was to spend some time uh, exploring what our users needed and what sort of um, programming people wanted, what worked well, what didn't work well. And uh, we operated that for about two months. And then, of course, uh, the pandemic hit and everything shut down. But um, in that time, we were able to host a lot of groups. We had a lot of drop-in students um, come through the space. Uh, we had some classes come through the space. And we met with just a ton of people on campus to talk about what their needs are. And uh, we still learned a lot, even though it was cut short. So in general, on the show, we talk about sort of teaching and learning applications on campus um, in like considered widely. Uh, we talk about student needs and services, and we talk about what people are doing in their classrooms. How do you envision faculty making use of the makerspace or, or do you <laughs> envision that at the moment? Yeah, uh, we absolutely do. So there's sort of two sets of users when we're thinking right now about the space. And, and all of this is is still in process. So we're, we're going to be going around for the next couple months and probably for the next couple of years, uh, meeting people on campus and bringing them into the space and, and talking to them about the, how they want to work in the space and how they want to partner with us. So when I talk about things, I want to be clear that like none of this is written in stone at this point. Mm -hmm. we, we do have our one group of users that are the drop-in users who don't really... Um, know what they want to do and just want to explore some things. But we're also thinking in terms of uh, how to support um, ongoing users and curricular users. So in terms of faculty, um, we we really envision faculty uh, working with instructional designers, working with KELT, working with us to think about how the learning objectives in their classes relate to this sort of set of um, of 
maker competencies that have been developed um, mm. and how those map together. And then thinking about projects or um, activities like reflections that they can do where students can come in either as individuals or in groups and use aspects of the makerspace to um, advance parts of those classes. Uh, so for instance, if I could give a quick example, yeah. uh, there's a Bachelor of Education program on campus that includes a cohort that is specific for STEM education. So they're this really great group of students who um, are passionate about teaching um, mostly secondary students STEM topics. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are core users of our kinds of technologies. And um, early on in the pilot, we ran a couple sessions where essentially we um, created a couple sets of activities for these students to come in and go through. One was with educational robots. So um, just we built some mazes on the floor and we worked with them to think about how they would structure an activity with students to program the robots to move through the uh, mazes. And then Mm -hmm. we gave them all a VR experience and um, we used a material cutter with them so they could think about how they would use that in their classrooms as well. So that's a a one example of of the sort of activity we could see doing. And the outcome of that was a a short set of um, reflections about what they thought about the space and how they would use some of the technologies. Um, A lot of other programs on campus um, have an innovation component or a design component, and we could um, see working with those students um, to uh, use some of our tools to complete those assignments. So for instance, prototyping um, a particular tool or um, a new innovation. Um, You used the phrase maker competencies just then. And if someone's listening and they're not quite sure what you mean by maker competencies, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, we're using this set of uh, competencies that were developed by the University of Texas at Arlington. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, essentially, they're a set of 15 um, competencies, larger competencies with sort of sub-competencies under them. Um, So they're things like ideate, so identify the need to invent, design, fabricate, build, or repurpose, or create a new thing. Um, I'm sort of cutting parts of that off. Uh, <laughs> analyze the idea, question, or problem, uh, explore the idea, question, or problem, or potential solutions. Um, so that's in the ID8 section. Uh, and then there's create, there's manage, and at the end there's share, which is great. So pursue uh, entrepreneurial opportunities, um, you know, be mindful of the spectrum of cultural, economic, environmental, and social issues surrounding making. So mm. these sort of sets of competencies, and each of those is sort of a, um, a larger one that has sub-competencies under it, we envision, at least right now, as um, a set of competencies that uh, faculty could think about mapping on to what they're teaching in classes. Yeah, um, totally. And then uh, that can sort of be the set of outcomes um, that they think about in terms of when they're trying to create an activity. And, you know, we really are hoping that um, the instructional designers on campus and faculty can can work together to um, guide the development of those activities. And then we can be a space where those are made real, where we can also work with the faculty to make sure that we have the equipment and we have the space and um, we know that they're coming in and uh, we, we can work with them to help them sort of um, do what they're going to do, whether that's make a podcast or um, have a VR experience or sew something or use an embroidery machine. Um, or I think there'll be beading work. Um, we, we really, um, we don't want to put uh, any particular um, controls or limits on those things, but anything that can be done with the technology we have in the space. Oh, that's very cool. I like those maker competencies too, because they're quite, maybe broad's not the right word, but I can see them having broad applicability across the disciplines, right? Like you think of STEM and makerspaces as having 
kind of a natural affinity for each other. But Mm -hmm. I can totally see how social sciences and humanities, English classes, right, would be doing very similar kinds of critical thinking work that actually really nicely maps on to thinking around like ideation and, Mm -hmm. and testing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I like that, for instance, you know, the the ideated and create ones, I think, sort of seem um, more obvious to people. Um, but the second set of them, the manage and the share ones are particularly interesting. So manage sort of includes developing a project plan, assembling effective mm. teams, collaborating, um, having effective knowledge management practices. Uh, and then under share, you sort of need to start thinking about legal issues, um, issues mm. around copyright um, and uh, licensing, whether you want to have entrepreneurial act- opportunities. So I think there's broad applicability of these, which is um, why we're at least right now using them as our framework for curricular embedded activities within the space. Um, so I guess my question is kind of why now, why TRU, what brought this project together at this moment, or maybe the moment was two years ago, but <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> um, why a makerspace for our campus? Yeah. So uh, so I came from uh, the University of Minnesota before I um, came to TRU, and before that I was at UBC. And when I was at UBC, I was on the board of um, the Vancouver Maker Foundation, which puts on uh, a maker fair every year. And I was part of putting that on. And then also part of uh, putting on a number of educational camps for kids around making. Mm. And that's always been where my interest came from. I'm, I'm actually sort of less of a maker myself than I am passionate and interested in the sort of cultural environment that develops in these spaces when they work, mm-hmm. this sort of mm-hmm. um, horizontal teaching you have between users. It's very unstructured. It's not vertical. Um, and uh, I really find that fascinating and, and very um, energizing to be part of that and to see it when it happens. Um, And then at the University of Minnesota, I had the opportunity to be part of helping them think about the design of their spaces they were building as I was um, preparing to leave that institution. So when I came to TRU, I uh, expressed interest in this and put together a a small proposal and got a grant to start the pilot. Uh, And uh, I think it was actually sort of... um, you know, luck and good timing and that the the library, as I think a lot of people know, moved from the old library building mm. into HOL after the pandemic happened. And so they were um, figuring out what spaces would be used for what. And uh, there was a seven room space available um, that uh, would work well for a maker space. So that's sort of pragmatically how this came about. Uh, in terms of why TRU, I actually think having worked at other institutions um, that have makerspaces, I think TRU is an example of, a, of an institution where a makerspace really works perfectly because we're, we're a medium-sized institution. Um, mm. And so, uh, you know, if, if you're at a really large institution where, you know, the Faculty of Health Sciences is 20 or 30,000 people, yeah. really all the faculties are going to have their own large makerspaces. Um, even departments might have their own makerspaces. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's less interest in sort of collaborating um, between something that could be a common good on campus, uh, which is really too bad because these spaces work better when you bring together people from the trades and the arts and the sciences and business together in one space, because that's what Mm. makes them sort of magic. And um, so TRU is the type of institution, I think, where the size is right, where you walk around campus and you get to know people. And um, it actually would work, I think, to to build a sort of collaborative environment. Uh, And I think that's a a big benefit. Um, And then we also have a really great trades program and um, a really great business program and other really great programs that have a lot of really engaged 
um, knowledgeable students and faculty um, who are excited about a space like this. So I think it really makes sense uh, at an institution like TRU. Okay, so let's talk like brass tacks. Mm -hmm. So let's say I'm a faculty member and I've heard there's this makerspace and I've got my students doing some kind of creative project. Mm -hmm. Maybe I want them all to make podcasts. Maybe I just am giving them a pretty open-ended assignment. And I, I want to intersect with the makerspace in some way. What do I do from from the sort of pre-semester sort of standpoint? What do I do? Yeah, I, you know what? I'm going to be honest and say we're still kind of figuring that out right now. Um, That's loud. Yeah, That's loud. <laughs> uh, we're working with Kelt. We're working with other stakeholders. I, I would say that I think the way we would envision this working is that uh, hopefully faculty would reach out early um, mm-hmm. and work with instructional designers and work with us to you know, scope out and think about what this would look like. Um, you know, we want to make sure that um, projects that are being assigned are of an appropriate size um, mm. and an appropriate scope for students to actually um, conduct and that um, it'll work within our space. We're not a, a massive space. Um, so we want to figure out like what's the right balance between those things um, mm-hmm. and then work to sort of figure out what the the competencies and outcomes are um, that makes sense within the, the scope of the class. Um, we'll probably have to trial some stuff. Um, you know, faculty should expect to get their hands a little dirty and come in and, yeah. and make sure that it's actually doable. Um, but that's pretty exciting as well because it's it's a lot of fun to work with these tools and it's a lot of fun to to prototype and tinker and explore and do things iteratively. Um, so so to do that and then to come up with, you know, actually how we're going to do that and whether that is, you know, small groups dropping in or whether we host a, a workshop or have a class visit. Um, and uh, all of that is sort of the stuff that's uh, being determined right now and over the next uh, six to eight months. Yeah, that makes sense. And also stuff that will probably change as things roll out. Mm-hmm. I liked what you said about faculty getting their hands sturdy. The only thing that we do that's really analogous are our e-portfolios. Um, and one thing we've really learned from a lot of trial and a lot of error, somehow possibly more error than trial, uh-huh. um, is, that, <laughs> is that the project works best when faculty also set up a WordPress space and are mm-hmm. also messing around. Um not just because students are going to have questions and it helps to have a basic familiarity or fluency with what they're working on, but because mm-hmm. it shows the faculty member's investment in the tool, right? Which is a really big selling feature when it comes to getting buy-in on non-traditional assessments generally. Right. Yeah. And I think we, you know, um, we probably aren't, uh, we don't really want uh, faculty to just sort of, um, you know, drop a time in uh, for their yeah. students to just come into the space without letting us know we're, we're not a huge space. Um, so we're really going to want to work with faculty to, to correctly scope the size of, of what they want their students to do in our space um, and think about that. And I think that's going to involve a lot of, of sort of hands-on um, hands-on work. And I, I think in doing that hands-on work in, in my experience, uh, that is where you figure out what the right scope is and what really works. Mm-hmm. Your mm-hmm. the first version you go in with is not the version that ends up working. It's the fifth or sixth version. Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, being able to spend that time and and think through the process is going to be, I think, the valuable piece that that creates the assignments and activities that really work well. Yeah, I'm excited just to have you guys as a space where, I don't know, iterative practice is Mm -hmm. really explicitly happening on campus and people can see examples of how it works. I think that's really valuable. 
Yeah, I, and I mean, that's the, I think the key thing we're trying to do in this space is, is create a culture of that um, within the mm -hmm. space. I, I think I've said over and over again over the last year as we've we've put this together um, that, you know, the technology is not really the important part of, a, of the space. You can buy a 3D printer and a VR headset and put them in a room and it doesn't make anything particularly interesting. In fact, if you walk around campuses anywhere, you will find lots of rooms that have a dusty 3D printer up on a shelf um, <laughs> that hasn't been plugged in or used uh, in months or years. What makes the spaces interesting are the sort of scaffolding that you provide and the culture you create um, that allows people to feel comfortable and welcome and that they're, um, they're meant to be in the space. And also, you know, that design thinking and iterative thinking um, processes that allow them to feel like um, they're allowed to make mistakes. They're allowed to yeah. be messy. That the, that's the point of being in the space. And so we also, in terms of instructional design, we want to make sure instructional design um, mirrors that and that the instructional design isn't simply, you know, come into the space, download this thing, plug it into the 3D printer and hit print. We want it to be um, a process of thinking about what you're actually trying to do and designing something new and being innovative and making mistakes and um, and fixing them when they come up and uh, and then trying it all again. And uh, it's not always going to be pretty or straightforward, but that's the point of the space. Um, mm -hmm. I have a friend at Vancouver Makerspace um, who's one of the people who uh, started the Vancouver Hackspace many years ago, and it's how I got interested in this. He's traveled around the world um, on his off time, uh, going to makerspaces because he's just really into them. And mm. one of the observations he told me years ago that's always stuck with me is um, that nothing ever really gets completed at a makerspace. Uh, no. <laughs> the makerspace is where people learn how to use a tool and they meet a bunch of people and they maybe do their first couple prototypes. But usually by the time they're at a stage where they're actually trying to complete something, they've sort of moved beyond what's available in the space. They've, they, they need mm -hmm. to buy some equipment or work with someone else. And this was within the context of people doing innovations or entrepreneurship or inventing things. But I think it, it holds true for the culture we're trying to create, which is that the mm -hmm. outcomes aren't necessarily the important thing. It's, it's really the, the process. Well, I'm thinking about this in terms of knowledge mobilization for faculty research, because when we do our workshops around that topic, one of the things I know is that everybody's really excited about the idea of a podcast, but they mm -hmm. have no idea what goes into it, right? And we can describe it. Like we we have tons of little videos. Here's how to edit a podcast. Here's how to find music. You know, we've got tons of that stuff. But it's not until you actually like sit down and record it and think about releasing it and wonder if you actually want comments, which is a big part of, of mm -hmm. that particular sort of method of knowledge mobilization. Um and so I'm just eager to have a space on campus where people can go and mess around uh, yeah. before they've spent, you know, $250 on a microphone for their office um, to really see, you know, is this the kind of thing I want to be doing? What are my other options? Where else might this project fit? Because, you know, oftentimes the... Um, I'm trying to say like we don't always know what the best modality is right mm -hmm. until we actually are in the midst of it and uh that can be frustrating if you're not sort of set up to think in that way so it's nice to have a space on campus that is very much just about play and mm -hmm. practice and trying things out one of the most important tools we're going to have i think within this space is actually just a bunch of cardboard and sticky tape uh, mm. or sticky notes actually and tape and uh, sharpies so that people can sort of um, get messy and prototype with things but just physically yeah. like a lot of the tech is really interesting because people 
get really obsessive with the idea of 3D printers or laser cutters as that being the most interesting thing. And it they are very cool and it is very, very interesting. But the the switching modalities is is something that I think is important. And then also mm-hmm. providing more sort of basic and, and welcoming ways um, for people to start thinking. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, another thing just related to that that I've been thinking a lot about is is how to prompt that kind of thinking. And I, I've talked with um, Andrew Fergus and, and Sobi who does a lot of stuff around design thinking. And I'm going to be talking with, um, you know, other people on campus who care about these things to, to sort of discuss like what activities can we set up for people who walk in to get them to start thinking in that way? What sort of design Mm. thinking activities can we have? Because it's really hard when you walk into a space and someone's like, Hey, you know, welcome, be creative. Um, And and if if that's me, it's not going to work. I immediately shut down like instantaneously. Totally. And so we also recognize that with all of our, a lot of the sort of instructional stuff we're going to be doing, and this will probably include with curricular embedded stuff where we're working with faculty is, is just basic uh, assignments, not, not assignments, but basic like instructional um, scaffolding to get people to start loosening up and being more creative. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like a silly little example of that, that I, I sort of like, cause I'm a very like, uh, I can sometimes be a cynical guy is I had an assignment once at a, at a workshop that was just, um, it was a piece of paper with 20 circles on it. And you are just supposed to draw something at every circle. Um, and it was just like a design thinking activity to get the juices flowing. And, you know, I, I started doing it in that way sometimes. And as a faculty member at a workshop, you just sort of start doing things um, because you're expected to. And by the yeah. end of it, I was like, oh, wow, that was really crazy. Like my mind is much more open and loose now. Halfway through that two minute activity, I started thinking of, oh, wait a minute, I can actually draw outside the circle. They didn't say I couldn't do that. You know, the circle can be a smiley face. It doesn't have to have something drawn in it. And um, so thinking in terms of how we also scaffold and create opportunities for students to start um, in a comfortable way, Mm. thinking about, um, you know, prototyping and iterative thinking and design thinking um, that gets them into that, that psychological space is going to be something we have to think a lot about. I just love the idea of a place where I can go and plan stuff and be messy because one of the things that is frustrating about faculty offices, mm-hmm. is there's never enough space to actually just like map out a project. It's mm-hmm. always like without, you know, looking like somebody needs to call the FBI because you look like a serial killer. So that's, right. yeah. that's my pro- That's my process. Um, <laughs> we're almost at the end of our time, Franklin. I was just wondering if there's anything we haven't talked about with relation to the makerspace that you want to make sure people know or any sort of last thoughts you want to share. Uh, not off the top of my head. I would just say that, you know, as we're in the process of reaching out to people on campus, I want to encourage people to feel comfortable reaching out to me and sending me an email. I'd love to, um, you know, talk with you individually, or if you have a small group that you want to talk, um, you want to meet with me with, or if you want me to come to your department, we will hopefully be planning to, um, visit as many people on campus as we can. But, um, if you're particularly interested in this topic, please reach out early because we're really at the point of um, thinking about uh, what the space looks like uh, in terms of programming, instructional design, and uh, policies and procedures. And uh, now is the time for us to um, sort of uh, be loose and, and think broadly. So I really encourage people to reach out um, if they're interested. That's awesome. I'm so excited about this space. I, I intend to, to uh, haunt it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it being up and running. Yeah, I'm really excited to uh, to host you and have you in the space and also the rest of the TRU community. Uh, we really want this to be a open welcoming space for all students, faculty and staff on campus to come in and, um, you know, just play with some tech and, 
uh, look around and see what they think and um, and think about how they want to use it for um, their other sort of goals and initiatives. Fabulous. Thanks so much for your time today, Franklin. Yeah, thank you. So that is it for episode 32 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray, and in both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca, and of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip, and today's tiny teaching tip is a little bit about the kind of messy iterative thinking that Franklin was talking about, and a little bit about the openness off the top of the show. Can you build some space in your course to talk about failure? Talk about making mistakes? Talk about how you came to a process of thinking about your discipline the way that you did? A couple weeks ago, back at Congress, I gave a paper about my experiences of blogging failure. And I was reminded of just how useful it has been to be able to talk about failure throughout my practice as a teacher and as a learner. And I'm often struck by our lack of models of failure in the academy. There's a really great article, I'll link to it in the show notes, all about the idea of militant failure, that in the academy, we need to adopt a kind of form of militant failure in order to push back against the kinds of stories of failure that we hear only once they're wrapped up in a larger story of success. Talking to each other about failure shouldn't be about reinforcing resiliency. It should be about making space for mistakes. So maybe there's a way you could open that space up for your students. I hope you'll give it a try. And until next time, take care of each other and yourselves, and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye.